Amen. Thank you, Yana. Well, good morning. Nice to uh, see you all again today. Looking forward to opening God's uh, Word with you. If you want some sermon notes, there are some on the on the back table there. Uh, they'll be very helpful. And there's actually some questions on the back of these sermon notes perhaps you could use in a small group environment or for your own personal study. So uh, make yourself available of those. That'd be great. What are some of the most uh, critical questions in life? Now, for you individually, what are some of those questions? Perhaps it's uh, got to do with an education or career choice. Perhaps it's got to do with retirement or a health scheme or, or which particular investment you're going to invest in. Perhaps it's to do with who you're going to marry. Perhaps it's to do with where you're going to live. You know, all those questions are very temporal in nature, aren't they? They're very temporal. They're about the here and now. But in the end, I think these questions fall short of the two most critical questions that we need to be asking ourselves, that any human being should ask themselves. And the first question is, well, how can I be saved? How can I have a relationship with the Creator, the God of this universe? How is eternal life granted? And that's an incredibly important question. And you think about our world, many, many different people ask that question, hence the many different religions that we have. And once that question is answered, how is a person saved? I think the next most critical question in the the lineup of, of questions is, once I'm saved, how do I respond to this, this saviour? The Bible talks about that being as how am I sanctified? How do I serve God? And they are critical questions. And this morning as we look at a very familiar passage, as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, these are the questions that come from the text which we'll be studying together. And they're answered in the most significant way. And so let's just uh, look at Ephesians. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you haven't got a Bible, there's, I think there's some in the pews there. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Let's read the text together. Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you are looking at a NIV translation, what I'd like you to do is put a little circle in, in uh, verse 2 and verse 10 because it will have the word live in which you once lived. Just put a little note outside your margin there and put the word walked. In verse 2 and in verse 10, that we should walk in them. It's really significant that this whole paragraph of Scripture is, is actually bookended, if you like, by what it means to walk. And we have two types of walk. As we read the first three uh, verses, we we have the walk of all humanity. Anyone who has born, anyone who lives, is described in the first three verses in relation to their walk towards God. And it starts out with a, a startling statement. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That statement reoccurs, if you look in your text, it reoccurs actually in verse 5. So Paul takes a little digression. He starts off with a statement and then he, and he explains what that statement means. He grabs a statement and says, what does it mean to be dead in your, your trespasses and sins? And because he's writing to a people, he's writing to a church, he's writing to a church in Ephesus, he aligns up the first couple of statements to them personally. As you see by the personal pronoun, you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's a living death. That's a contradiction in terms. He's stating that you are completely fashioned by the world in which you live or you were completely fashioned by the world in which you lived. You were walking according to the devil when we see this term, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, he's describing the person we know as the devil. You are walking according, or we, as see how the pronoun changes in verse 3, he says, 
not just you, but we. He includes himself. So he says, Paul, myself, along with you Ephesians believers, and then he blows it up to all humanity later in the verse, we also lived in the passions of our flesh. So you walked according to the world. You were directed by the devil and his desires upon you and over you. And you're walking in your own flesh according to your own desires. This is his description of what it means to be dead in your trespasses and sins. And it's an active thing because as you walk in these things, there are certain results. You carry out the desires of the body. You carry out the desires of the mind. And then he uses this term, you are children of wrath. And notice the very last phrase, like the rest of mankind. There's no getting away from the fact that humanity here is described in such a way that it is completely separated from God. Completely separated from God. Dead in sins, living by the standards of the world, under the control of the devil, and by nature. Get that one. By very nature, under God's wrath. He uses this term, children of wrath. It's a what we call a Hebraism. So Hebraism is something that's used in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you will you will see, yeah, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see many times the, the phrase, uh, sons of disobedience, right? And the people of God acted and they were sons of disobedience. And that's very similar to what Paul uses here and says, children of wrath. And it really means that you're worthy to receive divine judgment because of your behaviour. That's what he's driving at. There's this complete separation between humanity and the Creator. The God who's created everything, given life and breath to, to you and I, to all creation, to the animals, to the birds that sing, to the human beings that walk this earth. There is this separation because by nature... We deserve divine judgment. And we know why that is. Because Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. And by their one act brought death to us all. The reason we die is because that is the the very wages by which are paid because of our disobedience. Romans talks about that. The wages of sin is death. That's the separation. But there is some good news. We'll get back in a little minute. See, when it comes to salvation, these verses clearly show us that we are separated. And not only separated, we are also unable to in any way respond. You say, well, what do you mean by that? How can we not respond? Well, if you look at the very words here, this metaphor of death has with it that dead people just can't respond. If you're dead, you can't respond to anything. Is that right? 
I don't know, I haven't been dead yet, but I've seen some dead people. And I know that when you see a, a body or a corpse on the table and, and, and you speak to that corpse, that it's not going to respond in any way whatsoever. See, we're not only dead in our actions, but we're dead in our nature. We are spiritually removed. We cannot save ourselves. And the Bible provides uh, some images of this to help us understand the concept of the total inability of our dead nature to save. Think about this for a moment. Just imagine you were with Jesus when he was at the tomb of Lazarus. Okay, we all know the story of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. He comes along and, and Mary and Martha are crying out to him, our brother's died, we wish you were here four days ago, but he's dead. And Jesus says, no, he's not dead, he's just sleeping. Let's go down to the tomb and, and a miracle occurs, right? Jesus calls forth Lazarus. Well, just imagine if you were at that situation um, would you approach Lazarus who was dead and say hey Lazarus you need to get up because Jesus is here come on Lazarus he's a wonderful saviour all we need to do is reach out to him you wouldn't say those sorts of things would you because you realise that Lazarus couldn't respond to you he was dead you see only Jesus could call Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus responded to Jesus' call because Jesus gave him ears to hear. Jesus gave him strength to move and I reckon that would have been a really hilarious thing in, uh, in the time of Jesus when Lazarus hopped out of the tomb all mummified Jesus gave him the strength to move. Jesus gave him the breath to live and the will to obey. You see, Lazarus responded to the call. There's nothing he could do. He was dead. But Lazarus responded to the call and Jesus was totally responsible for the new life that was given to Lazarus because he was dead. Jesus alone raised Lazarus to life. He alone is the life giver because Lazarus is dead and totally unable to do a a thing. In a similar way, what these verses tell us are that we are all spiritually dead prior to God giving us a new life through Christ. This is our position before a holy God. Powerless to save ourselves. Romans 3 even talks about the fact that we're even powerless to seek after God. There's no one righteous. No, not one. And that is our state. That is our state before a holy God. And I've got to ask the question as I look out. I don't know many of you here But does this explain your state before God today? Is your life living, being lived according to the standards of this world? Is your life entrapped to the bondage of sin 
because you give in to the flesh. Entirely concerned about pleasure seeking or lifestyle or materialism. Your passions are controlling you. And the devil is consistently giving you lies before your eyes and you're sucked in by those temptations. Do you think continually about the temporal as opposed to the eternal? I think that's one of the scourges of our Western culture. We are so consumed with the temporal and it draws our focus away from our Creator, from our Saviour. If that's you today, I have some wonderful news as we go through the rest of this text. Some wonderful news. I just want to read slowly again verses 4 to 7 because this is the central part of of this paragraph. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God's mercy and grace makes us alive with Christ. I love it every time I see these contrasts in scripture. We've had the, the, the bad news that by nature we cannot bridge this gap between God and ourselves but then we have this wonderful contrast even though we were dead spiritually God stoops from heaven with his amazing mercy and love and makes us alive together with Christ not only does he make us alive he raises us up and he seats us with him in the heavenlies. This is the key component of this paragraph. You know, I know probably before I started preaching on this, if I did a bit of a straw poll and said, what's the main theme of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10? Everyone would have said, oh, by grace you are saved. By grace you are saved as a result of God making you alive. God makes us alive in Christ. This is what this clearly Teaches, because of God's rich mercy, because God's love is not towards the innocent. God expresses his love toward the disobedient, to those who by nature follow the world, to those by nature follow the flesh, to those by nature follow the devil. God's love just, and mercy just, rolls in here and he provides a way. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, the, the blessing and the glory of these contrasts. We were dead but now we can be made alive. Who makes us alive according to these verses? God. How? 
through Christ. This is the only time in uh, this letter Paul uses the word mercy. He actually, Paul doesn't use mercy very often at all, even in all his writings. This is a, he only uses it about ten times. I just want to draw your attention to the Old Testament a little bit here, just to, to provide a little bit of, I guess, uh, context around what God's mercy means. In the Old Testament, a word that is commonly translated uh, steadfast love or loving kindness is the, the Hebrew word hesed. It appears around 200 times in the Old Testament and it's one of the derivatives of explaining what God's mercy is about. And see, it's particularly important in the Old Testament because God shows his mercy to a what? A very disobedient people. But God is in covenant relationship with these people. He's made a covenant with them. He's made a promise with them that I'm going to be your God, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make you a great nation. And whenever we read in the Old Testament of God's loving kindness or his steadfast faithfulness, it's talking about his mercy towards his covenant people. In my home church at Canterbury Gardens at the moment, we've just started a series in the book of Judges. And you think, oh, that's a pretty (laughs) tough series. Yeah, it is. But one thing that's coming across in uh, time and time again is God's grace and mercy to a disobedient people. God is the one who provides a, a judge or a deliverer. The people continually cry out in their oppression. They continually cry out, oh, the, the enemies are there and they're oppressing us and our lives aren't good. We can't get food. We can't do this. We can't do that. Note the people never cry out in repentance in the book of Judges. They just cry out and, and, and oh, woe is me. It's tough. What's, what is God's response? In grace, he provides a judge. He provides a deliverer. Similar concept here. Except the context of mercy here is not one of covenant faithfulness, but it's one of God's character and compassion for sinners. Because it's tied clearly to the state in which we all are, a state that cannot give us salvation. God's mercy is a result of his character and compassion for sinners. God extends his mercy towards sinners because of his great love. And God knows we're totally helpless and entrapped and ensnared to our sin. So what this is telling me is that this is amazing. Dead people can walk. Dead people can be made alive by the act of God through Christ. Because when we're made alive and also made alive, we're raised, which means eternal life is given. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that raises you and I from spiritual death into eternal life. 
and we are seated. We have an inheritance. The start of Ephesians chapter 1 talks about that inheritance we have in Christ. I'll, I'll let in your own time reread Ephesians 1 and just see the inheritance that's given to us in Christ. Out of any other book in the New Testament, actually, I think it's 27 times in the book of Ephesians, in Christ is mentioned. And that's key to understanding who we are. The way in which we're saved, the way in which we are sanctified, and the way in which we're glorified is all in Christ through the Father's good will. Verse 7 gives us a little bit of a purpose clause. He says, okay, because of this kindness of God, because of his mercy, why? Why has he done this? Why has he made us alive? Why has he raised us up? Why has he seated us with Christ? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So God's mighty saving acts are a revelation of his kindness. And it's not only to the present age in which Paul was talking to the Ephesian believers but it continues to all ages. To you and I who are recipients of the same mercy. And this being a reflection of God's mercy to us to show the immeasurable riches of his grace through us also has some responsibility for you and I. This is why whenever we talk of Jesus, whenever we talk of grace, it must be Christ-centred. It must flow out of a praise from our hearts for the love of God in Christ. Our hearts must be moved by this love and obedience. And when this occurs, this will move our hearts to convince us more and more of our dependence upon his kindness rather than dependence upon our performance. You see, God loves us entirely out of his mercy. We may never fully understand that. We may never fully understand the mysteries mysteries of God's sovereign act in salvation as it's described in Ephesians 1. But we can grasp his overwhelming love and mercy and we can fall on our knees in thankfulness. So in summary of these two sections, we were dead but now we're made alive. How are we made alive? It's only through God who is the only one who sovereignly acts to make the spiritually dead alive by uniting us to Christ. And then we have the famous verses in verses 8 and 9, which really is just a summary statement. It's a summary statement of verses 4 through 7. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, I like this translation. I was coming across a couple of different translations and I really like the way this translation said it. I think it was the... Holman Christian Bible said on the basis of grace you are saved 
on the basis of grace you are saved. So it points right back to the one doing the saving. It points back to God. By the grace basis of grace you are saved. Second time that the statement is used. Note in verse 5, I never read it, but in verse 5 he, um, Paul sort of pours out with enthusiasm in the middle of making this grand statement that we're alive in Christ. He, he throws in a phrase there, by grace you're saved. And then he carries on, or you're, you're seated and you're raised up, and then he finally thinks, oh, I better get back to that phrase. It's by grace you are saved. That is God's gift. There's nothing you can add to it. There's no merit in humanity in our salvation. Salvation doesn't come by church attendance. It doesn't come by denominational, uh, I guess, allegiance. It doesn't come by baptism. It doesn't come by good works doesn't come by reading the Bible, doesn't come by liturgies, it doesn't come by birthright. There's no human endeavour in salvation. It's God's grace and God's grace alone. And it's a gift. Salvation is on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You go to many other parts of the world and and every other religion, every other major religion is based on works. It's based on what you do. Christianity is the only truth that is based on what God has done. He's made you alive. And then he concludes the the paragraph here in verse 10 and this is a really I think a a wonderful verse for we are his workmanship or his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so I reckon Paul is trying to really build on the fact that it is by God's grace and he says look There is no confusion here. He states, not only is our salvation of God's, an act of God's kindness, so is our ongoing sanctification. So is our ongoing service towards God. See, as a new creation, we are God's. This is what the verse tells me. We are His workmanship. We are His handiwork. God is working in us to Make us alive. We are as handiwork created in Christ Jesus. The point is clear. God intends those whom he has saved by his abundant grace to live in a manner that is worthy of their calling. Hence the, the second clause here. Because we are created in him, we are his handiwork. What does God do? And when does he do it? From before the foundation of the world, from eternity past, he's prepared good works for you and I to walk in. Isn't that mind-blowing? From eternity past, in the same way he has saved you from eternity past, one, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, 5 and 6, he also provides the means by which you will do good works. 
and are gifts of God's grace. These works are not the basis of our salvation, but the, the consequence of being a new creation in Christ. And they are prepared beforehand as a gracious act of God. God takes the gracious initiative by carefully preparing works for the believer to do. So walking in a manner which we should walk, which we'll pick up in Ephesians 4 in a couple of weeks' time, is to walk in God's grace. He has saved us by grace. He will continue to allow us to live a life for him here by his grace to fulfill the works which he has prepared before for us to do. How does he do that? Through his indwelling spirit. So I'd ask you the question, how would your walk be described? You've seen in this passage of scripture two contrasting ways to live. Two clearly contrasting ways to live. You can either live according to the passions of yourself, according to the course of this world, You can continue to fill your body and mind with your own desires. You can continue to be an object of God's divine wrath. Or you can be made alive in Christ through faith in Christ, which is a gift of God's grace. Folks, there are two paths that we walk down. There's a broad road that leads to destruction. And many are on that road. There's a narrow road that leads to life. And for followers of Christ, that narrow road has already already been prepared for you. And through his grace and through his empowering spirit, he leads you each step of the way. That's tremendous news. So our sanctification and our salvation are completely a work of God's kindness and grace. You see, we are too dead to be the source of our salvation. We are too weak to be the maintainers of our salvation. We are too finite to be the stewards of our salvation. The magnitude and magnificence of what salvation involves indicate that it must be entirely a gift of God's grace. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we 
We say those words afresh this morning as we have contemplated your rich mercy and kindness and love towards us. Father, for many of us in this room, we have experienced you making us alive in Christ and we praise you for that. Father, for some in this room, we may have never experienced that and we pray that you will call those to yourself today. Father, we thank you for the great encouragement from your word this morning. We thank you that you have a path mapped out for us. And not only is uh, this path mapped out, but you empower us through your Holy Spirit in obedience to follow your ways. We thank you for this gift of grace in our lives also. Father, we pray as we continue this series and we wrestle with what it means to to walk as you command, that we'll always, always remember that our walk is based on the incredible salvation you provide in Christ. We pray these things now in the powerful name of our risen Saviour. Amen.